Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in North Carolina this week. I almost forgot where we were. Surprise, North Kakalaki. North Kakalaki. Yeah, that's what the joke I always called it, like driving through. My oh. friend introduced me to it, and I thought it was absolutely charming. <laughs> so now I'm just like, Kakalaki. I like it. Have you ever, well, you apparently have driven through it, then have you ever actually stopped in North Carolina and done anything? No, it's been a drive through state for me. Okay. Like Connecticut's mostly been for me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, my sister lived in Fayetteville. Oh, cool. So um, I'm pretty familiar with North Carolina. I actually um, have a fun fact about Fayetteville. Oh, really? It was where Babe Ruth hit his first home run in huh. 1914. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Does your sister still live in North Carolina? No, she lives in Pittsburgh now. Oh. But you spent a pretty good chunk of time there? A decent amount. Not as much as when she lived in Maryland or when she lived in York, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. But Have you ever been to, uh, what is it, the Outer Banks? Um, no, I have not actually. Yeah, that's I think a place a lot of people I know have been in in North Carolina, but my story actually takes place in the Inner Banks. Oh, yeah, don't, you don't hear much about the Inner Banks. I know. <laughs> um, well, I do have some fun facts about lovely North Carolina, aside from the Babe Ruth one. Okay. The Venus fi- flytrap plant, you know those mm-hmm. like eat flies and such. Yes. They are only found in two American states, North Carolina and South Carolina, but it's actually native to Hempstead, North Carolina. Really? I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. I thought that was fascinating because I always think of them as like tropical plants. But Me I guess, too. Yeah. I guess the Carolinas are kind of subtropical, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I remember um, learning about how Venus flytraps worked in biology class. We watched this video where apparently Venus flytraps have these little trigger hairs. Yes. And you can like tap them. Yes. But they won't like eat your finger because they, they're not that strong. Yeah, it's like a chemical it's, reaction, right? Yeah, it's uh, for bugs. Basically, the bugs trigger these hairs and then the flytrap closes and it just kind of like dissolves them. Delicious. Yes. It's kind of like... Protein. Oh, what's that candy? What candy? The one that melts in your mouth. M&M's? No, not M&M's. <laughs> <laughs> melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Razzles? Is it Razzles? Ra- oh, I never had gum. I never had Razzles. I guess you could chew it too. I just remember from the movie 13 going on 30 that they talked about Razzles, oh, razzles. a lot. They're kind of gross, but yeah. any gum that becomes candy has a potential to be gross though. I've also never had red vines. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Which are non-Twizzler Twizzlers. You know how there's like the East Coast, West Coast divide. Right? Yeah. Uh, every time I go to the West Coast, somebody always has red vines. Really? So it's... Something I've tried a couple of times and my take on it is, you know how Twizzlers are best when you get them out of the large packet of Twizzlers? Yes. Like individually wrapped Twizzlers are kind of gross. They're kind of like hard and weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the opposite for red vines. Oh. The individually wrapped red vines are way tastier. Than like you, the big bucket. Yeah. When you get like the like the bag of red vines, you realize how much they taste like red number five. Yeah. Okay. I can <laughs> it's see that. It's a little that. sad. Yeah. Uh, what else about North Carolina? Uh, Cape Hatteras is the largest lighthouse that ever had to be moved due to erosion. Oh, okay. So that's that's unique. We just talked about a ton of lighthouses in Maine. How do you move a lighthouse? I Not easily, to, I assume. Yeah, I bet you have to do it like stone by stone or yeah. chunk by chunk. Chunk. Well, actually, I forget where the hell I was when they were talking about how they moved this mansion from one place to another. And apparently they strapped it up to like a bunch of oxen. What? Yeah. Oh, they have logs underneath it to roll. They had Jesus. something to make it roll, but then like the oxen just like dragged it wherever. That's insane. Which is insane. Yeah. Oh. I wish I could remember where the hell that was. Some place that I took tours of mansions, <laughs> which has been a lot of places. <laughs> North Carolina is the largest producer of sweet potatoes in the nation. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense because I feel like I've seen driving through like stands on the side of the road that like like sweet potato fries and stuff or even just like bags of sweet potatoes you can like pull over and buy. I think I mentioned this before, but I can only eat a little bit of sweet potato before it becomes too sweet and I don't like it anymore. Do you have the same, you know, sometimes sweet potatoes are actually yams. Yeah. Do you have the same thing with the yams too? I don't know. I always thought they were exactly the same thing. They're not exactly the same. Most things that we consider sweet potatoes are actually yams. Huh. They're like a Texas yam. Sweet potatoes are actually a little bit smaller, more round, I guess. Okay. Uh, I, see, I guess like yams are more pointy on the ends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like yams. Yeah. I also had this like thing where I didn't like potatoes for a long time. Really? Yeah, for like 
20 years, I was like, potatoes are the worst. Oh, I love French fries. Mm-mm. And of course, I love like hash browns and home fries. Those are all the things I hated. But <laughs> and mashed potatoes. I'm like, they're all gross. Home fries <laughs> need to be burnt to a crisp, though. Like, I want them to be burnt and then they are delicious. I need them crispy as fuck that's fair i think also too when i was living in new york like they do their home fries differently they always put onions and peppers in them yeah and it always makes them like not crispy it does it and makes that them was, soggy like, the end of my hash brown home fry days well the weird thing is sometimes home fries end up being hash browns yes which is weird and then also sometimes home fries when i went to um rhode island home fries were not home fries home fries were like these like potato wedges yeah, that's it was like weird. A, I don't like that. I expected home fries to be home fries. Mm-mm. My wife has changed my opinion on potatoes, though. Oh, really? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because like potatoes potato. are awesome. Yeah, it turns out. Who knew? And the fact that the you Irish didn't like potatoes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you didn't like potatoes, uh, makes me know for sure that you're definitely not a Taurus. <laughs> no, no, it's normally like a Taurus's favorite food is potatoes. <laughs> Comforting, indulgent. Yes. <laughs> Nothing killed me more. Like sometimes uh, growing up, my mom would be like, like, you know, you're, you're working and like you have to feed like your family and like the easiest side in the world is a baked potato because mm-hmm. you just literally throw it in the oven yeah. of the microwave. I don't really like baked potatoes, but. And like my mom, bless her heart, like tried to sell those baked potatoes to me any way she could. <laughs> She's like, it's great. You can put, you can put salsa on top of it. I'm like, gross. Yeah. Like, you can put cheese on it and broccoli. You love broccoli. We'll put broccoli on it. I'm like, gross. I just <laughs> put the broccoli, please. Exactly. I don't even really like cheese on my broccoli. Yeah. I love cheese and I love broccoli. I don't want them together. If it's a soup, though. Okay. If it's a oh, cream of broccoli mm-hmm. and like cheddar mm-hmm. broccoli. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more. Anyway. <laughs> we got severely off topic. <laughs> <laughs> North Carolina. It's also home to the highest waterfall in the eastern area of the U.S. It's called Whitewater Falls and it's located in Transylvania County. I've heard of it. Yeah. I'm looking at a picture of it. It's quite beautiful. A waterfall. Everybody yeah. loves a waterfall. Except people that don't, I guess. But, you know. At 480 feet high, Fontana Dam is the tallest dam in the eastern United States. Alrighty. I know Fontana Dam was one of those uh, Tennessee River Valley like, yeah. New Deal projects. And I came across a story about how when they built it, they had to flood all these towns. Oh, really? And they pretty much like had these people. like They didn't move anything, like the houses. They just paid oh, these people to leave. And so there's also a road called the road to nowhere. Yeah. Because part of the flooding also covered a state route in North oh, Carolina. Oh, shit. And they're supposed to build this other road to finish it. But after the, after World War One, or sorry, after World War Two, they realized that it just wasn't feasible because yeah. there's too much, uh, too many of the rocks around it were moving and then they have to repair the road constantly. It wasn't worth it. So they never built it. But unfortunately for the folks who had given up their land to make Fontana Dam happen, that was promised to them so they could go back and like visit like the graveyards of their family. Okay. <laughs> but they couldn't because it was flooded and they didn't have a road. Oh God. You're just making yeah. me think of uh Crestwood from uh dragon age inquisition. Yes. Very similar. Um, also speaking of roads and stuff like that, do you know that they are getting rid of that graffiti highway in Centralia, Pennsylvania? I heard they're covering it with dirt. Yep. Yeah. Cause they said there was too much vandalism and too much other stuff. And yeah. tragic. Yeah. That's why we can't have nice things. We can't have nice things that are kind of on fire. Uh, do you like mini golf, by the way? Yes, I love mini golf. Well, you have Fayetteville again to thank for that. Nice. The first putt-putt course was built in Fayetteville. Sweet. I know. I like mini golf. Mini golf is fun. It's funny because I might not get everything else on the first try, but I almost always get that extra hole at the end oh yeah and get the free game mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. i don't know why because it's like this should be more difficult than the rest of it was but i get that one all the time you've good timing yeah i guess so uh it's funny so i enjoy putt-putt and my wife does not she oh really mini golf like oh, I remember well, we were, i'll go with you we were first dating i was like we can go mini golf and she's like that sounds like not fun oh really and then i in turn i don't like bowling Oh, okay. I love bowling too. I'm terrible at it. And I'm like also like a He-Man. So like I heave the ball and it always bounces on me and like get kicked (laughs) out. And she loves bowling. So it's always like the trade-off where it's like, well, we're on vacation. There's this really cool putt-putt course. Look, it has a volcano. Oh, nice. Like then it's okay. Same thing with bowling. It's like, well, that's a cool bowling alley. I guess we can go. There's beers. There's a pretty fun miniature golf course on top of the roof of Ryan's Gems and Junk. 
in um, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Oh, I love rooftop mini golf. Yes. They're really cool. It's a lot of fun. You can see the ocean because it's right on the boardwalk. It's not pirate themed, is it? I don't think so. Oh, good. Good. I don't remember anymore, but it's fun. So the license plates in North Carolina, right? They always say first in flight. Yes. I have also seen variants that say first in freedom. Okay. And I'm like, what? That's because many people believe that North Carolina was the original revolutionary state during okay. the war for independence. Uh, there was the Mecklenburg Declaration of 1775 that they declared independence from England, which predates, of course, the Declaration of Independence yeah. from 1776. Okay. Interesting, right? That's pretty cool. Um, let's see. Anything else interesting about North Carolina here? It leads the nation in furniture, tobacco, brick, and textile production. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't and know see, that. I thought Virginia would be more tobacco than North Carolina. Yeah. But also, of course, home to Virginia Dare, the first American, first English child born on American soil. Oh. Lost Colony of Roanoke. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Roanoke. Still not over that American horror story season. <laughs> Mm-mm. That's all I really have for fun, surprising things about North Carolina. All right. They were all pretty interesting and fun. I like them. I agree. I agree. All right. I guess I'll get started with my story then. Yeah, I'm excited. Okay, cool. This one's pretty interesting. So our story this week, and Nicole, I'm sure you'll like this one because I took a page out of your book this time around. Really? Yes. My story takes place in Parkton, North Carolina, which is in Robeson County. I looked everywhere to find out how to pronounce it and found different people telling me different things from Robeson, Robeson, Robinson, and then finally the one that I've been assured is correct, Robeson. Robeson. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's spelled like Robeson, Mm -hmm. but yeah, they said there are no robes in Robeson. (laughs) So anyway, Parkton is uh, in the Lumberton metropolitan area and is teeny tiny at only a little more than half a square mile and only has 436 people in total. Wow, that's super small. It's very small. So the name Parkton comes from way, way back when people would ride their horses to the train station and tie the horses up outside, essentially parking them. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of love that. There's pretty much nothing in Parkton, but I will tell you a little about Lumberton instead, because we're also going there for a little bit, too. All right, cool. It's a lot bigger than Parkton is and has over 20,000 people living in it. It gets its name from the Lumber River nearby and was developed as a shipping port for shipping out, you guessed it, lumber. That is so surprising. I know. This place, because of it being in the Inner Banks area and because of being near the river, has had big issues with flooding, especially when hurricanes roll around or blow around, I guess I should say. Blow around. (laughs) Both Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Florence severely flooded the area. Uh, Some famous or at least reasonably famous people have come out of Lumberton, including its governor from 1925 to 1929, Angus McLean, two composers, Mark Anderson and Mary Carol Warwick, Brad Allen, who is an NFL referee, Brad Edwards, who is a football player, and most notably for being an all-around terrible human being, the subject of today's tale, the death row granny, a.k.a. Velma Barfield. (gasps) Velma Barfield. Do you know Velma Barfield? Uh, Only in terms that she's popped up in the lists uh, that I've looked at before. Yes. Well, Velma is quite an interesting character, so I cannot wait to tell you about her. I want to start off by saying I decided to do this story because what isn't intriguing about an old lady serial killer? Well, quote unquote serial killer. I put serial killer in quotes uh, because she's not the kind that you think of, but she's still considered one due to the fact that she killed several people over a long period of time. But we'll get to all that. Velma Barfield was born Margie Velma Bullard on October 29th, 1932 in South Carolina. She was the oldest girl and second oldest child in a huge family of nine children. Okay. I don't know if she was just born in South Carolina or if she then moved, but between her birth and her second birthday, her family was living on a farm in Wade, North Carolina. So they didn't stay in South Carolina for long. Okay. 
There was little money to go around in this family, and their house had no plumbing or electricity. It didn't even have an outhouse, so if she had to go to the bathroom, Velma would have to go out to the woods or use chamber pots. Mm. I know, right? Chamber pots? What year is this? You'd think that it was like the 1530s and not the 1930s. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Oh, well. I didn't know much about her mother, but her name is Lily Bullard. I know more than I'd like to know about her father, though. His name was Murphy, and apparently he was an abusive alcoholic. He also worked long hours for a lot of Velma's childhood at a textile mill. Okay. She had a lot of chores around the house, such as basic cleaning, doing the laundry and ironing, as well as mending her family's clothes. And remember, she's still a kid at this point, probably around 11 years old, and she's doing all these things for 11 people. Wow. Her dad would actually take her out of school to go home and do chores because washing clothes or the washing board takes a bazillion years. Yeah, I bet. 11 people's clothes, no less. Yeah. She liked school a lot and really hated when her dad would do that. The only happy memory that she really has of her father is when he bought her a, uh, like an expensive ruffled pink dress once. Mm-hmm. That's about it. That's, That's the best sad. she can say about her dad. Uh, by the age of 12... She was also in charge of cooking every meal as well. When she was 13, her family moved to Robison. Growing up, with her family being so poor, she began to notice that all these other kids her age had these toys and cool clothes, and she just didn't have any of that, which led her to start stealing. Okay. That's right. It's an early life crime for this one. <laughs> she started small, taking money from her father's wallet, but later progressed to stealing $80 from a neighbor. Her father did find out about that, though, and beat her after. Not the best parenting by today's standards, but that's just the way you did it in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Well, it was effective, and she stopped stealing after that. Once she reached puberty, things took a nasty turn for her, and her father started sexually abusing her. I assume this was really easy to do, seeing as I found out that she slept in her parents' bed all through high school. Oh, yeah, because they're big family. Big family didn't have room. Yeah, it was like the 30s and 40s. Yep. Yeah. The sexual abuse first began when she was 13 years old, and she stayed home from school with the flu. She was alone with her father, from what I could tell, and that's when he decided to take advantage of her. Gross. So gross. When she was 15... She had the chance to join the school's basketball team, and she was probably thinking, wow, this sounds like a nice distraction from my shitty life, but her parents wouldn't allow her to join because she had too many chores at home. So she thinks she finds like an outlet, perhaps, Mm -hmm. or some kind of refuge, and nope, just kidding, kiddo, you have too much work to do. Yeah, exactly. You can't do that. You need to work for us. Yeah. So to get away from her troubled home life, she got married at the age of 17 to a man named Thomas Burke, who was her high school sweetheart. She first met him when she was 13 and moved to Robeson County, but her father wouldn't let her start dating until she was 16. So on her 16th birthday, I'm pretty sure that's when they started dating. Okay. He proposed to her in a movie theater. That's kind of sweet. Yeah. They ended up running away to Dillon, South Carolina to get married and both end up dropping out of high school. Okay. Velma and Thomas are both living with Thomas's parents, and Thomas gets a job at a textile mill in Red Springs, which I hope is a different textile mill than the one her dad works at. Hopefully. Otherwise, it'd be awkward in the break room. (laughs) Very, very awkward. By 1951, when she's 19, they move back to Wade, and her husband gets another job for a soda company. That October... They have their first child together, a son named Ronnie. This is when they moved to Parkton. Okay. In 1953, they had a second child. This one is a daughter named Kim. Now, she and her husband had been going to church for a while, and it was definitely something that Velma was interested in, but she began taking a very active role in the church after Kim was born and actually taught Sunday school. Okay. So you may be thinking to yourself, but Eden, she's a mother. And later, she's going to be a grandmother, and she's a Sunday school teacher. Grandmas and Sunday school teachers don't kill people. Well, you just have to be patient and let me finish my story. God. I guess. Jesus. After being so rudely interrupted by the listeners in my head, I guess I'll get back (laughs) to my story. 
So at this point, Velma starts working in a textile factory as well because everyone loves textiles here. Mm-hmm. One day in 1962, Velma isn't feeling so well in her downstairs places. That's the best way I can describe it. Her lady area. Her lady area. Her no-no bits. <laughs> so she goes to the doctor and ends up needing to have a hysterectomy. Oh, that's drastic. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it was a good thing she already had two kids because not having any more. Everything was going okay after that. Velma is a little depressed and not seeing her husband as often due to conflicting work schedules. But other than that, things are well. Velma's mom actually gives them some land near Parkton and they build a house there. So life is mostly good mm-hmm. until Velma starts to believe that maybe there were some complications from the hysterectomy. And she says that she's having a, quote, problem with her nerves, end quote. Initially, when I read those words, I thought she was saying that since it was complications from surgery, that she's having some sort of nerve damage. Mm-hmm. But no, she meant that she was feeling nervous and anxious oh. most of the time, which hmm. I don't really think unless like psychosomatically could happen after surgery but it's not something that would be directly linked to the surgery i mean uh probably not but who knows what i mean there seems to be a little bit of murkiness about why suddenly they're like oh your lady parts hurt let's just kick them out take them out problem solved exactly so who knows it's within the next few years that thomas begins to develop a drinking problem awesome and I'm assuming Velma was reminded of her dad a great deal when this started. She hates alcohol because of her father. Uh, so that was probably the beginning of the end in some ways, maybe. I don't know because I wasn't there. But, you know, you're taking this journey with me. Well, <laughs> see what happens. Anyway, they start arguing a lot at this point, And he starts drinking more and their fights turn physical with Thomas beating Velma now. It's like she's come full circle, even though it looked like she like escaped. Got out. That's yeah. awful. Things get worse when Velma calls the cops on him, and he's sent to the hospital uh, for his alcoholism. He gets out in three days, and he's like just pissed. <laughs> he ends up losing his job also because of his drinking. Because of this, Velma has to work two jobs to support the family. Thomas is getting worse at this point, and I don't think he has a job yet, and he's getting violent with the kids, too. There was an incident where he pinned Ronnie up against the wall and threatened him with a knife. That's, yeah, that's that's very drastic. Yeah. It's at this point where Velma is actually hospitalized for nerves, and she's put on heavy-duty tranquilizers, which are supposed to be taken once a day, but she takes three a day and becomes addicted to the pills. Oh, my God. This is the 60s now, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that was like mommy's little helper. Uh-huh. Where it's like, your life's hell. Mm, have, have a Valium, a sweetheart. <laughs> These dolls will take you to sleep. <laughs> These dolls will perk you up. Exactly. So, it's the same year, 1969 now, when Velma possibly, it hasn't been proven, commits her first murder. But I'll tell you the official story. Okay. According to the report... Thomas was smoking a cigarette and passes out drunk, dropping said cigarette and dying of smoke inhalation as the house burns down. Supposedly, Velma wasn't there as she was staying with her mother, I believe. She had taken the kids and left because of how crazy he had gotten. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, Velma, who may or may not have just killed him then, is like, oh, my nerves, please help. So the nurse shoots her up with something and this kind of furthers her drug addiction. A few months later, Velma is introduced to husband number two, a man named Jennings Barfield, by a co-worker at one of her jobs. This was the other job she was working, which I believe was a retail place. Okay. He's got a few health problems, such as emphysema and diabetes, but all Velma sees is a big whole hunk of man. <laughs> so they get married a year later, and she ends up becoming his primary caregiver. Okay. Now... That was August, and by November, she's already having some issues controlling her drug problems, and she overdoses. She, Yeah. She spends some time in the hospital, but ultimately recovers and is sent home. Three months later, however, she has another overdose and spends three weeks in the hospital. Mm. This is when Jennings tells his family that he is completely regretting his decision to marry Velma, but doesn't really matter much because he wouldn't have much time to regret these things. 
we're getting to the reason I said I took a page out of your book. On March 22nd, 1971, Jennings starts to feel a little sick. He was having some trouble breathing, plus some vomiting and diarrhea, and ends up dying. What could have killed him, Nicole? Sounds so familiar. Oh, I don't, it's on the tip of my tongue. Was it, is that, arsenic? Cyanide? That's it? right. Hello, arsenic, my old friend. I've come <laughs> to drink you down again. Later... Velma said she just wanted to make him sick and never meant to kill him, but these things happen, I guess. That's like excuse number one out of the Poisoner's Handbook. I didn't think it would kill him. Didn't um uh Thimble Lady say yes. the same thing? Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> a thimble full should fucking do it. What an idiot. <laughs> She's like, I loved him. I just wanted to make him regret being a jerk. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So she's never caught for this murder, however, and they ruled the death a heart attack for some reason. Uh, in October of the next year, after she's now killed husband number two, she once again overdoses and is hospitalized for three weeks, and her life kind of turns more to shit than before. She gets fired from her job and loses the house because she can't pay the mortgage. She ends up moving in with her grandparents then. One, I guess, good thing that happens for her is in april her dad dies of lung cancer and she moves once again into her mother's home okay so i mean not great for the dad but he was kind of a jerk so i don't know remember when i said she didn't steal again after her dad beat her yeah i lied oh tricky she ends up forging her mother's signature and taking out a thousand dollar loan against the house then another thousand a month later Again, probably all for drugs. Yeah, I assume. Uh, Meanwhile, she's also writing bad checks from one of Jennings' closed accounts. Yep, up to her old tricks. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, she is up to her old tricks in more than one way because Lily, her mom, gets a notice in the mail about an outstanding unpaid loan and losing the house. So Velma figures the jig is up and goes to buy some rat poison. Oh, my God. Real? (sighs) Yep. After a little bit, her mother is suddenly feeling like crap and having issues with vomiting and diarrhea. Sound familiar? Well, she calls the doctor for her mom, and the doctor is nice enough to give them a prescription. That night, Lily's condition is getting so bad that she couldn't even stand. Mm. So Velma, being the kind, loving daughter she is, takes her mom to a hospital. Now, I saw two different things here on different sites. One which is saying that her mother pulled through and then she poisoned her again, this time killing her. And another saying that she died later in the hospital from being poisoned, which was once again labeled a heart attack, by the way. So even though it's murky, basically her mom died and they said it was a heart attack, but she was most definitely poisoned. She was definitely poisoned. She and Velma later admitted to that. Mm. Um so, yeah, that one also labeled a heart attack. You know, I was initially sympathetic to Velma and, like, her situation right? in life. But now it's, like, and I get that, like, when you're addicted to drugs, you make bad decisions. But these are really, Still, really bad yeah. decisions. <laughs> so, I looked it up because I thought to myself, how do they keep saying heart attack for arsenic poisoning? Yeah. Like, not gastrointestinal yeah. stress or something. So, like, do heart attack victims throw up and poop everywhere? I don't think so. Um, I mean, maybe they can. I don't know. Well, what I could find was a link from a slow poisoning of ingested arsenic and eventual heart problems. So maybe there's something there, but I still don't get, oh, she died of a heart attack. There's nothing that really linked the two to that extreme. Well, it could be one of those things where like because you're poisoned and your body's under like distress that it weakens your heart. And True. then when you actually have a, if you have like a cardiac event then because your heart's weakened, it's like, oh, well. Heart attack. Heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my two cents. Yeah. In my unprofessional, non-medically educated opinion. (laughs) We'll trust you, though. After this, which was December of 1974, she moved into a mobile home with her daughter, Kim, and her husband, Dennis. Meanwhile, she still hasn't paid off those bad checks, and the sheriff's department want that money paid. But of course, Velma doesn't have any since she's just hanging around jobless, pillin' and killin'. Pillin' and killin'. <laughs> so she does the Velma thing and decides to overdose on pills, but this time on purpose. 
She fails and ends up breaking her collarbone, I don't really know how, and ends up in the hospital. This doesn't really make her problems go away, though, and she's arrested after her release from the hospital. For for the bad checks. The bad checks or the debt. Of all the shit to get arrested for, bad checks, not the three murders you've committed, just the bad checks. Don't forget about the possible arson, too. Oh, yeah. So, she's in jail. What do you think she decides to do now? Uh, write more bad checks. Overdose. Oh, dang it. I should have went for door number one. <laughs> and I, well, you have like, you know, three options with her. Overdose, <laughs> write bad checks. Or poison Or someone. poison. <laughs> yeah. So, she decides to overdose. And I really don't want to know where she stored those pills. I mean, it is prison. Yeah. Or jail, rather. I'm mm. sure, you know. Sketchy things go on. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, she survived again and is sentenced to six months in prison for the bad checks. Uh, but she gets out in four for good behavior. And they say nothing about the drugs that she OD'd on? Nope. I wonder if they're prescription. That'd be so messed up. I think they are prescriptions still. Because she keeps getting them from the doctor being like, oh, my nerves, my nerves, my nerves. <sighs> nerves. Yeah. So her mother was also autopsied. And she really lucked out on this one because it came back with no signs of poisons. Hmm. I really don't know how she did it, but she did it. Hmm. Once out, Velma obviously still didn't have a job and is once again living with her daughter and son-in-law and back to her stealing ways to fuel her drug habit. She uh, she forges another check in her son-in-law's name and tries to get more pills, but her daughter finds out and talks to her doctor about it, asking him to stop giving Velma pills. <laughs> I think it's about time. Yeah. In 1975, Velma finally gets a job, and it's the worst kind of job for a woman like her, because it just gives me flashbacks to your story. Uh, she is a live-in caretaker uh. <laughs> <laughs> for a 93-year-old man. Yep. One pill for me, one pill for you. <laughs> exactly. A little rat poison to help you, the medicine go down. <laughs> um, you want to get married? <laughs> <laughs> so his name is Montgomery Edwards. And Velma was hired by his wife, Dolly, because she was old and frail as well and couldn't do it by herself. <sighs> so she got to stay in their house for free and was paid $75 a week. I didn't do the inflation thing to mm-hmm. see what that was, but... 1975 money it's got to be a lot better now because i know my mom telling me about like when she was younger and had jobs she got paid like maybe a dollar a month or like you know like i mean a dollar every week or dollar every two weeks or whatever or like a dollar an hour that's what it was yeah well it's like when milk was like what like 60 cents or whatever uh yeah so the equivalent today would be like around like mm, like 350 bucks a week I would take 350 bucks a week. She figured that's what, like, doing quick math in the head, which I'm not good at, yeah. would be like 1400 bucks a month. Yeah. So that's not terrible. That's not terrible. Anyway, she pretty much hated Dolly from the beginning because Dolly seemed to be overly critical of everything mm. involving her. Well, a little over a year later, Montgomery dies and Velma is still living in the house with Dolly. But remember, she hates Dolly. So what does she do? Arsenic time. Mm. She did not kill Montgomery, though, by the way. He was he just, just old and natural. died. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I know. First, I was like, let me read more about this. <laughs> so I Googled everywhere, but I no, she did. a heart attack. I'm confused. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't kill him. Uh, but she goes and buys some poison, and Dolly dies just two months after her husband. Wow. Uh, I believe it was also a heart attack for Ugh. that one as well. Um. A month later, Velma gets another live-in caretaker position for Record Lee, who had a broken leg, and John Henry Lee. Her salary isn't as great as it was with her previous employer, and she only gets $50 a week this time. But it's probably a lot less work than the previous job, Mm -hmm. so makes sense. Well, she decides, I can't live off of this. I need more money. And she forges one of John's checks. But only for $50 this time, not 1000 like the previous ones. Okay. She's worried that he'll find out about it, though. So she decides a little poison will take care of that problem. <sighs> At least make it for more than $50. I know. Come on, girl. If you're going to go full in, go full in. So he dies, too. Guess what the coroner's report said his cause of death was? Heart attack. A fucking heart attack. 
Is she paying off the coroner and forged checks? What is going on? I mean, truth be told, it could just be that she's killing all these people in the same place, right? So it's the same coroner. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, it's it seems like a more rural area of, of North Carolina. It could so. just not be a very good coroner. Or it's like that's what they're used to, you know? It's maybe, like yeah. people around you don't get murdered often. So like, Or maybe go- everyone does and they're just... <gasps> Constantly like, well, this is what a heart attack looks like. Well, you've heard of, you've heard of, um, what do they, what do they call it? Arkansas, Arkansas side or Arkansas? Uh, no. So in the state of Arkansas, like back in like the eighties uh, and nineties, like the chief medical examiner for the state, uh, it turns out he cut corners a lot and would just kind of make things up. Huh. And so people who were legitimately murdered in that state were oh, ruled no. that It was a whole big scandal. There's a really good, um podcast about it Helen gone that kind of touches on it and uh, I was like shocked wow so it is one of those things if you're someplace that's more rural it's like you're used to dealing with people who probably die of accidental or natural deaths so you look for the most obvious cause damn okay well I guess yeah. so that's yeah. why I think that's why the heart attack is like and it's a heart just, attack. everything's a heart attack mm-hmm. yeah anyway after this she quits her job as record lease caretaker and starts working as a nurse's aide in a nursing home oh my god <laughs> that Mm-mm. I know. So she's setting herself up for some straight up like angel of death. Death stuff. Ugh. That's what I thought too, but it's it doesn't take that turn. I'm already ang- Thank you. I'm already anxious enough. <laughs> she also starts dating Dolly's nephew, Stuart Taylor, whom she met back when she was still working for her. He's just her type too because he's another alcoholic. Oh, gosh. Everything was going great in their relationship until one day he finds some letters that she received when she was in prison. She never told him about that. The prison or the letters? The prison. Oh. So he was a little mad about this, uh, but I guess they smoothed things over since they stayed together after that. It wasn't long before she got an itchy pen finger again, though, and decided to start forging more checks. This time, it was from Stewart's account. She also wanted to cover her tracks again, so she decided to go and get some more poison. (laughs) (laughs) I know. If it ain't broke exactly this woman's like a record um i swear she needs a punch card at this point for all this poison but what does she care i guess because it's not her money anyway it's being purchased with forged checks oh my god oh you might also be wondering what she needed this particular check for maybe you aren't curious but i'll tell you anyway because it's weird okay it's not drugs this time. Okay, that's a change. It's probably still somewhat drugs. It's but, slightly refreshing. Um, Yeah, she wanted to have some of her left breast removed. Just the left one? I don't know why, because she didn't have breast cancer. So she can, like, shoot a bow more effectively? <laughs> like, I don't what? know. It was not cancerous, but she still wanted it removed. Uh, I guess maybe she was bored and needed something to do. I don't know. That's weird. Or maybe it was part of her anxiety. She thought she maybe she something. thought she had cancer, even yeah. though the doctor's like, "I'm telling you, lady, you don't have cancer." And she's like, "Watch out, or I'll poison you." <laughs> anyway, she poisons Stuart, and they go to a church event or a religious concert, depending on the source. And suddenly, he just starts feeling really ill. Mm-hmm. I wonder what that problem could possibly be. They decide to go home, and she tells his family that he's just really not feeling well. Uh, Three days later, he's taken to the hospital, and he dies. They do another autopsy. And finally, it says that he was poisoned. Hmm. So. I wonder if she, like, changed her dosing. I don't know. Maybe she decided to to borrow the thimble and, you know. (laughs) Borrow a thimble. I don't know. Maybe the coroner is finally like, well, this is odd. Yeah. Why does everything. This woman knows. Why it is every time someone dies around you, it's a heart attack. This is weird. Um, or it could be that maybe he was a little bit younger than her other victims. I think he was because yeah. he was in his 50s. I feel like that's a that's like the thing that's interesting to me about poisoners is that as soon as they start getting greedy and crazed and they start poisoning people who yeah. are otherwise healthy, it's like, yeah, that's you're going to get caught and rightly so. Exactly. Yeah. So she finally it says that they that you know, she's been poisoned or he's been poisoned. Sorry. I'm forgetting which victim this was. There's so many of them. Uh, So they take Velma in after this shocking revelation and proceed to question her for three hours. Okay. She tried again after this to overdose, but her son stops her this time because who the hell needs that again? She decides it's finally time to come clean and she confesses to killing Stuart without a lawyer present or anything. And she is sentenced to death for murder in the first degree. 
which just didn't happen at this time in 1978. The death penalty had only become legal again shortly before her arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, she's been in several prisons in North Carolina, and they had trouble placing her since she was the only woman on death row. She was eventually put into Central Prison in Raleigh, where she was the only woman. Mm. But before that, when she was in a woman's prison, mm-hmm. she found God, even though I think she already had found God since she was a Sunday school teacher. She revisited God. But she revisited God. She she reconnected with him on Facebook. Mm. Lovely. Um, <laughs> on prayer book. Yeah, on prayer book, yeah. <laughs> um, so... She also started like mentoring like some of the women like around there and they started like calling her like granny and stuff like that. Well, I mean, at this point, I'm assuming she's probably off the pills finally. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think she's cleaned up by now. Oh, she was originally scheduled to be executed February 2nd of 1979, but she received a stay of execution. She also tried to appeal her sentence in 1980, but she was denied. Uh, She was scheduled to be executed again on September of 1980, but got that. Got another stay. Mm-hmm. She was rescheduled to October 17th, 1980 then, and then December 12th, but she received stays both times again. This went on and on with stays and appeal attempts until she was finally executed by lethal injection, which she chose over the gas chamber on November 2nd, 1984. And she was pronounced dead at 2.15 a.m. Wow. Right before her execution, she wrote letters to families of her victims and had her reverend give them to the families after she had died. But each and every one of them, as far as I could find, refused to accept the letters. I mean, I can understand that. Yeah, I wouldn't want anything to do with her. Yeah, it's almost like a if you were going to apologize and make amends, like you should do that before your last Before hour. your dad, yeah. yeah. It's a very cowardly cowardice way to oh yeah exactly so before i cite my sources i do have a fun fact about velma for her second appeal a psychiatrist tried to say that velma suffered from dissociative identity disorder or multiple personalities which is the more common way to say it wasn't that all in vogue too it was oh yeah uh she claimed that her alter named billy committed the crimes and had killed velma's abusers Okay. The judge actually said, quote, one of them did it. I don't care which one, end quote. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty great. Was like, mm-hmm. He was like, yeah, sure, sure, Billy, sit your ass down. Either way. Yeah. Well, you still did it. Um, so my sources for this week. Wikipedia, radford.edu, medium.com, crimemuseum.com, clarkprosecutor.org, and a video on YouTube called Death Row Stories, Velma Barfield. I don't know if that's a show or not, but it seemed like an episode or a TV show, so it probably is. Okay. What'd you think? Uh, I'm glad to know Velma's whole story because, like I mentioned before, she's popped up when I've looked at list of uh, female poisoners. Yeah. And it was always kind of like just, you know, the body count. Yeah. It wasn't anywhere nearly in depth as as your story. Yeah. And especially the whole her whole background about... You know, kind of growing up in this really oh, that took a lot of digging. Crappy, crappy childhood. That was from Radford.edu, because mm. um, it was something that I found when I was doing my first story for this um, podcast, but the original first story that I had done, which was not the one that actually aired, because um, uh, it wasn't as good. But it had like a full-on timeline, and I used that a lot throughout my notes. It really helped. It was a big, big help. And that's the only way that I found out more about her early childhood. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think I tried Wikipedia because normally they have like early life. It had like nothing, like maybe a sentence. Yeah. She seemed like a very damaged person who just continued to be damaged throughout her life and then inflicted it on others. Absolutely, yes. And again, I might feel bad that that happened to her in childhood because... She didn't deserve it, but then no one else deserved what she did to them either. Yeah. Past trauma isn't necessarily an excuse. No, not at all. Well, on that cheery note. (laughs) I guess we'll take a break because I have a Salem cat on my lap. And uh, we'll come back and I will share my paranormal story for North Carolina. I'm pretty excited because while I haven't been there in person, I know Eden has. So I'm curious for his firsthand knowledge. Ooh. Alrighty. All right. See you soon. We are back. We're back. 
All right, time to dive into my paranormal story. All right, do tell me. So we're heading today to Asheville, North Carolina, which is the largest city in Western North Carolina and the state's 12th most populous city. The second you said Asheville, everyone knew what you were doing. Yep, yep. Uh, Asheville is located in the Blue Ridge Mountains at the confluence of the Swannanoa River and the French Broad River. Now, surrounded by natural Appalachian beauty, the city has a thriving arts and music scene, excellent farmer's markets, and farmer table restaurants, multiple wineries and craft breweries, and several museums and historical buildings. Wow. So it's a pretty hit place. Yeah. But the jewel of Asheville, and our stop today, is Biltmore. Yep. I've been there. Mm-hmm. And to their winery, and I've been to like one other property that they had over in Asheville, and then also I've been to one of the um, the Vanderbilt properties in Rhode Island as well. Yeah, gorgeous, right? It's beautiful. It's definitely one on one of those uh, bucket list places for me to visit. At oh, some it's point. really nice. You'd like it a lot. Cool, cool. Um, you can also take a look at it in the movie Hannibal. Yes, it's like the location for so many movies. It's a lot of movie, yeah. So the Biltmore, uh, as we already mentioned, it's a Vanderbilt house. It was built by George Washington Vanderbilt II between 1889 and 1895. It's an Today, it's a 8,000-acre property. Uh, Biltmore was initially envisioned as a self-supporting estate modeled on historical European estates. Okay. Now, Vanderbilt set up various scientific forestry programs, a poultry farm, a cattle farm, a hog farm, a dairy, and a village to house the employees that worked on the property. Yep. And then he built himself a residence called the Biltmore House. Just a teeny tiny home. Teeny tiny summer getaway. It's like a shack, my God. Yeah, you know. <laughs> really slumming at this guy. Uh, today, the Bil- Compared to my huge 800 square foot house. <laughs> <laughs> Now, today, the Biltmore Estate features a hotel, a winery that you've been to. Yes. Lots of restaurants, shops, a successful dairy, gardens, and walking paths throughout the estate. The gardens are crazy. They looked gorgeous. It's so big. There's all these statues. It's beautiful. It's like a great place to spend an afternoon just wandering. Oh, yeah. Now, this little shack, the Biltmore House, is the (laughs) largest privately owned house in America. It is 100 and 78,926 square feet. That's pretty big. Yeah, yeah. It has over 250 rooms in the house. Yep, I remember that tour took forever. I know, it sounds like it's going to take forever. The the floor space alone in the house is about four acres. Yeah. So I imagine it's like a commitment to go on that tour. Oh my God, hours of your day are gone. (laughs) We did it on the way to visit my sister. (laughs) You're like, oh, we'll stop by. Yeah, for a we'll quick stop tour. here. It was like a whole day thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, it's one of the finest examples of a Gilded Age mansion that we have still to this day in the U.S. Uh, the Biltmore was specifically designed to be chateau esque, mm-hmm. which it, I think it, is a cool. It word. achieves. Achieves. <laughs> so it took its inspiration um, from the Renaissance chateaus in the Loire Valley in France. So some really cool uh, buildings were the like basically castles. Oh yeah. That's what this house looks like. Chateau is pretty much just a French castle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Like I mentioned, there's over 250 rooms. That includes 35 bedrooms for family and guests, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, three kitchens, and 19th century novelties such as an electric elevator, forced air heating, centrally controlled clocks, fire alarms, and a call bell system. Wow. Yeah, very high tech for, you know, the 1890s. Absolutely, yeah. Now, after procuring hundreds of decorative objects and furniture from Europe, George Vanderbilt officially opened his opulent estate on Christmas Eve, 1895. He invited friends and family from across the country for this elaborate Christmas celebration. He continued this tradition annually while he lived at Biltmore and also included his employees' families in the festivities. He would hold these Christmas celebrations for their children, and he would make sure that every single child had a present under this huge Christmas tree, and he made sure to include presents even for the families that couldn't attend the party. That's cool. Yeah. All in all, it sounded like George Vanderbilt was a very generous employer, and he really took care of the people that worked on the Biltmore Estates. That's cool. Yeah. Usually you hear about these guys who are super, super wealthy, and they just kind of like are jerks, but he was actually a pretty uh, interesting Vanderbilt 
very socially minded and he really wasn't interested in like perpetuating the family industry he just yeah. wanted to kind of explore science and forestry and being a gentleman farmer that was his oh, dream. more gentleman farmers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we experience a lot of them on this podcast we do the unofficial gentleman farmer podcast <laughs> as well as being the unofficial german podcast <laughs> uh, while vanderbilt split his time between biltmore and new york city he deeply loved the estate it's actually where his only child cornelia stivus and vanderbilt was born and raised so right. the Biltmore is a pretty amazing house to grow up in. I would imagine so. <laughs> now, let me I tell... imagine I would get lost every day. Right, right. <laughs> I, I know I'm about six hours late for dinner, but I couldn't find my way downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> so to give you an idea of how this house is laid out, um, I'm going to chat through some of the floors and to give you an idea of what it's like. Uh, the first floor is the one that features the primary rooms of the house. Uh, There's the elegant marble entry hall, which features an octagonal sunken winter garden surrounded by stone archways with ceilings that architecturally feature sculpted wood and faceted glass. There's the banquet hall, which is the largest room in the house. It's huge. Yeah, it's like (laughs) 42 feet by 72 feet with 70 foot high ceilings. My God. Like insane. Yeah. At one end, there's a triple fireplace because that's what you need to heat a room that large. I guess. Oh, God, the heating bills. Oh, the heating (laughs) bills. I forgot about that. Reality sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And the dining table in that room could seat 64 guests comfortably. All right. So. How about uncomfortably? Can you tell us then? 92. No, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Uh, There was also the tapestry gallery on the first floor that featured different 16th century European tapestries. And a two-story library that features over 10,000 volumes in eight languages, reflecting George Vanderbilt's broad interest in everything from classical literature, art, history, architecture, and, of course, gardening. Wow. Uh, that library is kind of like, it reminds me of the Beauty and the Beast scene. Oh, where like, yeah. Because um, there's also those um, those ladders that slide mm-hmm. in there as well. And I guess there's like a spiral staircase. Yes. Which I'm like, oh. The library, I mean, this is, I'm trying to remember back to probably, I want to say around like 94, 95, maybe. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long time, Uh, but I'm, the library was amazing. Yeah. I feel like for a book geek like me, it would be like. Oh, it's heaven. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the second floor is primarily living space for the family, as well as a bunch of family bedrooms and suites. Okay. Yep. The third floor contains guest rooms for visitors, and the fourth floor has 21 bedrooms for the on-site maids, cooks, and other female servants who live there. Plus, it has its own observatory with a circular staircase that leads up to a wrought iron balcony where you can see from the rooftop of Biltmore pretty much all of the estate. So, kind of awesome. Yeah. Like, I feel like George Vanderbilt did everything right. He did. Building this house. Because I'm like, yeah, if I had an eternal cash flow, this is what I would build. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Now, the second uh, part of the house is also called the bachelor's wing. It's kind of like a separate wing. Yeah. And this is the area that features things like the smoking room where male guests could go and enjoy an after dinner cigar and drink. The gun room that showed off George Vanderbilt's gun collection and his collection of mounted trophies. And the billiard room, which included a custom-made pool table, along with a car room table, which is basically like a pool table without pockets. This is also the area where Mr. Body met his untimely demise. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of, because this is where there are the secret passages. Oh, yeah, that's right. So while uh, the room was mainly frequented by men, ladies were welcome to enter, but the secret door panels... Um, on either side of the billiard room fireplace would lead to private quarters where male guests would stay and they wouldn't allow female guests or female staff members to enter. Jeez, I wonder what they were up to in there. Hence the bachelor wing. Yeah. Um, See, now if I had unlimited money and I could build a house, you better believe there'd be secret passageways out the ass. There'd be like you pull this book out of a bookshelf and boom, there you go. Yep. Pull down this candlestick. Be careful. Exactly. Yes. So, and then last but certainly not least is the house's basement because everyone has to have a pimped out basement. Oh, yeah. Uh, In the basement, it's where guests and family members could find activity rooms. So if you didn't feel like going outside or if it was rainy, you could enjoy an indoor 70,000 gallon heated swimming pool. Yeah. Big swimming pool. Big ass swimming pool. A bowling Bowling alley. alley. (laughs) Yep. And a gymnasium that featured, you know, 
19th century state-of-the-art fitness equipment, which Lord knows what that is, some kettlebells and one of those vibrating, shaky things. I was just about to say, the thing <laughs> the that shakes machine. your butt. <laughs> uh, the well, actually, those kind of come back in style, but not with like the weird belt. Because um, now there's these things that you stand on that vibrate your body. <sighs> so weird. My mom has one. It's actually kind of fun, but kind of annoying. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know my ass had this much jiggle. <laughs> like you could feel like everything <laughs> jiggle, 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 jiggle. It's so weird. <laughs> The basement's also where they had the kitchens, the, the servants' dining area, and also, of course, the laundry that you would need to facilitate all of those bed sheets for yeah. all of those bedrooms. Now, over the years, the cost of running the estate grew, and Vanderbilt ended up arranging to sell some of the additional property he built around, he bought around the estate to the federal government. He hoped that he could kind of parlay what he was already doing at Biltmore with a forestry school mm -hmm. into a state park to protect the beautiful uh, forest naturally around the estate. Uh, he would use the proceeds of the sale to shore up Biltmore's finances so that the estate could kind of continue to be self-sustaining. Unfortunately, in 1914, George Vanderbilt died suddenly at the age of 51 due to complications from an emergency appendectomy. Oh, I forgot he died that young. Yeah, he was very young. It was kind of out of the blue. His appendix was inflamed and he just didn't survive the surgery. Now his widow, Edith, completed George's dream by finishing the sale with the federal government. This sale established Pishgal National Forest. And she also went through and consolidated the remainder of George's estate for their daughter, Cornelia. Uh, Cornelia and her husband took over primary ownership of Biltmore and opened the estate to the public for the first time. They did this in the 1930s at the request of the Asheville city officials. Uh, the officials hoped that the tourism that would be stimulated by opening up this grand mansion would float the local economy through the Great Depression. Okay. So I think that's pretty cool that they're like, yeah, you know, our staff lives here. It's an important town to us. What can we do to help? Yeah. Now, the Biltmore house ceased being a family residence in the 1950s. That's when Cordelia's oldest son, George Cecil, moved out. By 1960, he was managing the estate with his brother, William, and they sort of converted it into a full-time historic museum house. Uh, George took over ownership of the more successful Biltmore Dairies, while his younger brother focused on updating and maintaining the house. I think that was probably one of the other things that I went to was the dairy. Yeah, I heard the dairy is really cool. Yeah, because um, I'm trying to remember because I remember the winery. I remember the house, but I know there was a third thing that we went to and I can't remember, but it was probably the dairy. Now, uh, the family still owns the house and they still operate Biltmore Estates. This place, as Eden can attest to, is gorgeous. It's beautiful. And it has over a million visitors every year. Wow. So it's a lot of people. And they can the fit them all at once. They can fit them all at once. <laughs> Now, with that many visitors, it was really only a matter of time before reports of unexplained paranormal activity started to surface in the Biltmore house. And see, I didn't really get anything being in the house. Like, I didn't really feel much of anything. That's interesting. A lot of people said that have the same experience. Um, one of the hot spots that people cited was the stairwell. Okay. Which kind of makes sense because it's a spiral stairwell that goes from, you know, the basement all the way up to the fourth floor. Yeah. And it's sort of a transitional space. And I feel like transitional spaces are always ripe for. Oh, yeah. Well, there's several creatures in mythology that live in the in-between, like all these between places, mm -hmm. these um, like, you know, in-between doorways or windows or, you know, things like that. So stairwells would count as that. And spiral is a mystical symbol. Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes sense that that would be like a maybe a hot spot. Absolutely. Now, one of the most commonly reported apparitions is actually that of George Vanderbilt himself. Okay. Which makes sense. He loved the place during life. He was an avid collector of books, as we already talked about, and he would often retreat into the library when poor weather would occur. So it would start to storm. He would basically go to his library and read until yeah. the storm passed. Uh, people say they have seen his ghost there during stormy weather. And he basically is just quietly perusing the shelves, looking over his collection. So whenever the song Stormy Weather plays, he appears. <laughs> Stormy weather. <laughs> Time to read. <laughs> uh, another common apparition that's tied to the library in particular is a female voice calling the name George. Most people believe that this soft calling is actually Vanderbilt's wife, Edith. 
um, because she often would have to go into the library and call for him to get him to come out and entertain guests. Okay. Apparently, after George's death, she would often spend hours in the library by herself talking to him, and it was one of those behaviors that made some of her employees kind of worry about her mental state. Yeah. Because she would just, you know, she missed her husband, and she would go to the place that he loved in the house and, and talk to him, yeah. which I think is a very normal thing to do when you're grieving. Absolutely. But some visitors report that they still hear these conversations that she had with her deceased husband when they're in the library, just faint murmurings of conversation that can't be explained. Okay, yeah. Another area of activity is, of course, that killer basement. Yes. Uh, the ghosts of several servants have been seen in the kitchen area, bustling about, going about their duties. I think I heard there was something about the pool. There is. So people hear splashing a lot yeah. in the pool area, which is odd because it's been drained for decades. Yeah, there's no water in it. Other visitors visitors report hearing an evil laughter drifting up from the pool's main drain. Too. No. Yeah, that's I don't super like creepy, that. right? Like you're like standing there, he's like, ma, ha, 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 ha. That's also an area uh, where a lady in black will appear. Um, it seems to be unconnected to the Biltmore family, but several visitors who have been in the pool area have seen this uh, lady in black apparition. And they say that when she appears, she will disappear. And then her disappearance is followed by these disembodied screams. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was kind of that's like, well, jarring. That's, that's terrifying. Yeah. Between the evil drain laughter and the <laughs> lady in black. Laughter. I'm like, oh, oh. And then um, one of the final ghosts that I learned about is kind of possibly the most charming in my book. And that is when you're in the winter garden, you can sometimes see a headless ginger kitty cat wandering around. Oh, why is it headless? I don't know why it's headless, but I still think that's kind of charming that you just hear this little headless kitty cat whopping around, killing ghost mice. I don't know. I'm sure. Well, he can come here and kill my my real mice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's that's quite a selection of ghosts uh, hanging out in this amazing mansion. Most of them seem pretty benign. I didn't really come across any particular reports of malicious spirits. Um, there were some reports of people being touched, um, feeling cold spots, okay. uh, strange smells. And the one that seems pretty on point is the echoes of a party so visitors this i have heard yeah visitors will hear clinking glasses laughter like a faint faint music and then the people of like voice the voices of people like chatting yeah echoing through the hallway so it's sort of like the house might be reliving its former glory days absolutely as like a party destination for the summertime houses when you think about them mm-hmm. they've experienced so many lifetimes so many people living there so many different things so i mean of course they can hold that energy and i mean that's what that is it's a replay of the past it's an echo yeah it's you know so i mean the house seeing that many people being there for that long Mm -hmm. almost develops its own personality its own life it's you know basically a living thing itself and i'm sure with all the visitors every year who come through it also just kind of increases that energy and that like oh yeah it seems overall that this place is, while it may have some paranormal activity, it seems pretty benign, very, um, yeah. and almost friendly in a weird way. Well, because it was mostly a place where, you know, people got together, partied, you know, mm-hmm. did fun stuff. So, I mean, it would probably have a lot of good energy. Yeah, for sure. So, Eden, you've been there. What do you think? Any any final thoughts? Uh, I don't like the evil drain laughter. No, who would? Who would? Um, yeah, don't like that very much. Um, that would make, like, I am glad that pool is empty. The woman in black screaming her head off. I'd kind of just be like, shut up. Yeah. That kind of yeah. reminded me of like the tales you hear about banshees, but I'm yeah. like, I don't, mm. I don't know. Were they Irish at all? No, they were mostly Dutch. Dutch. That's what I would have figured. Yeah. Because the last name Vanderbilt is, yeah. yeah. Anything with a dur and yeah. a van. From yeah. Debilt. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's Biltmore, guys. That's interesting. Like I said, I did not really experience anything at the Biltmore. I didn't really feel anything at the Biltmore. It was a long time ago, so maybe I didn't don't remember. But yeah, that was interesting. I didn't. I mean, I knew it was haunted because I had heard that Mm -hmm. it was haunted. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the specifics of that though. I just knew there was something with the pool. That's all I knew. Yeah, and they don't really lean into it because they don't have to. Yeah, it has such an interesting history and it's such an interesting place. They don't do haunted tours or anything like that. It's very much just like, yeah, there, there might be. They're like, it might be haunted, whatever. Yeah, they're very um, unassuming about it. Yeah, they didn't really mention anything on the tour at all. 
But I would definitely say if you haven't been there, go because it's really nice. It's beautiful. You'd really like it. I agree. I'm going to go there. I'll let you know. Do it. So my sources for this week's story were, of course, Wikipedia, our jumping off point for so many adventures. Of course. Asheville.com, Biltmore.com, AmazingAsheville.net, SeekingGhost.blogspot.com, OnlyInYourState.com, and NorthCarolinaGhost.com. All right. So. So, so yeah. I guess that's the end of our episode. I guess. I'm kind of sad. I was having fun. I know. I thought this was a pretty good one. Lady poisoners and screaming drains. <laughs> <laughs> screaming drains. Don't snake me. <laughs> Do you know how much hair is down here? Come on, get it together. <laughs> All right, gang. If you enjoyed today's story, or if you have any story suggestions, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do that by sending us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and also on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can stop by our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. And we'd also like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rocks Designs for our amazing logo. Uh, next week's stop will still be in North Carolina. That's true. We will be. I will have a delightfully... Probably because we spent all day at the Biltmore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a delightfully wicked true crime story for you, and Eden will have an equally delightful paranormal story. Well, don't hold me to that, but yeah, we'll try. Pressure! <laughs> all right, Roadsters, until next time. Creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on.